take your Bibles now and turn with me to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. We have set out on the second leg of our journey through the book of Genesis. In the first leg, we studied chapters 1 through 11. And there we saw the creation of the world. And we saw God's design and purpose for that creation. We have seen what has gone horribly wrong with the world because of sin. But in and all, we have seen the promise of restoration. We have seen a glimmer of hope that is given by God himself that a Savior will come who will reverse the curse and set all things right. That glimmer of hope is just a glimmer at the end of chapter 11. But it's there. And as we step now into our second leg of the journey, we began in chapter 12 to see that glimmer get a little bit brighter. Because the plan of salvation that God has set out is now taking another step forward. And as we get into chapter 12, the story focuses in on one man, Abram, or Abraham, and his family. And right away in chapter 12, God calls Abram out of his pagan life in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he leads him into the promised land, this land of Canaan. And he makes a wonderful promise to him. He promises that Abram will become a great nation with innumerable descendants. And he promises that those descendants will have a place to live. He promises them a land. And he promises to bless them and to protect them by blessing those who bless them and cursing those who curse them. And in it all, God promises that in Abram and in his descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's a promise that is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the descendant of Abraham, the Son of God, whose life and death and resurrection provide salvation to everyone who believes in him. So as we look at the life of Abram, we're looking at the life of a man of faith. And we're learning lessons about a life of faith. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, we saw a particular and spectacular display of faith on the part of Abram. Here's this pagan worshiper in a pagan land, growing up surrounded by pagan worship. And Yahweh shows up, speaks to him, and calls him to leave his land to leave his home, and to leave his family, to follow him to who knows where. And Abram gets up and goes. But then in verses 10 through 20, we saw Abram's faith falter. We see him make a decision that is incredibly foolish. And it has nearly disastrous consequences. It caused a great deal of danger and trouble. And as we saw that along the way, we have had opportunity to learn from Abram what true faith looks like and how to cultivate it in our own lives, both by looking at his successes and at his failures. 
but the story is not ultimately about Abram. The story is not merely about a great man of faith. It is about the God who is the object of that faith. Above all, we ought to see the sovereign power of Yahweh, the one true God. We ought to see in all of this His goodness and His faithfulness and His trustworthiness. He is the one who is at work in all of this. He is the one who calls His people. He is the one who leads His people and saves them and protects them and provides for them and fulfills every promise and every intention He has for their lives. And so above all else, as we study the Word of God, we are meant to recognize the greatness of God. And we are meant to place our complete trust in Him alone. And we are to follow Him and obey Him and serve Him in all things because these things are meant to bring us to the point of being a worshiper of God in all things. And that is what we see ultimately in the life of Abram. And studying all of these things and observing them through the story of one man's life is incredibly helpful for us. Because we're able to see the ups and downs. Abram was not a perfect man. Abram faltered. He made mistakes. He made egregious mistakes. He made stupid mistakes. And yet here he is, exalted as a man of faith. We find hope in that. That even the greatest men of faith still stumble at times. And as we observe the life of Abram, we are meant and we are able to learn valuable lessons from his successes and from his failures about living by faith. But in it all, we are also brought to see many different facets, many different displays of God's faithfulness to his people, often in spite of our weaknesses and failures, not just in our strengths and successes. All of that we saw in chapter 12. And now as we come to chapter 13, we have another account from the life of Abram an account that still highlights this tension between living by faith and living by sight. We're called to live by faith, but we're often tempted to live by sight. And this time, as we find in chapter 13, this is an account of a great victory of faith, a spiritual victory for Abram. But now his nephew Lot will stand in contrast. So let's look at the text, Genesis chapter 13, and let's read a story, a story of the settled faith of a godly pilgrim. Genesis 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, 
so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, where, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This passage begins and ends with an emphasis on Abram's worship of God. And his worship serves as, a, as bookends to everything that we see. And it is meant to reveal the mindset that surrounds and governs everything Abram does in this chapter. And it is a stark contrast to his failure in chapter 12, isn't it? It's a stark contrast to the mindset that we'll see in Lot throughout this passage. In verses 1 through 4, Abram returns from this humiliating trip to Egypt that we read about in chapter 12. He had acted foolishly. He had taken matters into his own hands. He had acted in his own wisdom and his own self-interest instead of trusting in the promise of God as he had before. And after making a complete mess of things in Egypt, putting his own wife in danger, tarnishing the testimony of Yahweh in the eyes of Pharaoh, having been rebuked by God through Pharaoh, ironically, it appears that Abram is learning his lesson. And he returns to the promised land, we read in verse 1. And then in verse 3, we read that he returns specifically to where his tent had been before, at the first, between Bethel and Ai. That's where he had built an altar. Verse 4 tells us that there, once again, he called upon the name of the Lord. Why is that important? Because here is a point of spiritual restoration for Abram. He had made a mistake. 
He had faltered in his faith. He had made foolish decisions, but God is faithful, and he had not cast him out. God did not return on his promises, evil for evil. And Abram comes to a point of restoration. It is, if you will, a moment of revival or renewal for him. It shows us what was really in the heart of this man of faith. And it shows us the grace and mercy of the Lord God. Though Abram had wandered and faltered in his faith, God graciously and mercifully brought him back to the place where he had called him. And in returning to the land, Abram's faith and trust in Yahweh is restored and strengthened, and he had found a God willing to forgive. And so it is. In the same way, all who return to the Lord in repentance and faith find Him a ready and willing and forgiving Savior. One who will restore His people. Now in verse 2, we see an important little detail. It says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. We noticed back in chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, when Abram left Hebron, that he was already fairly wealthy. And this would have been a, a pretty large group of people, likely, that were traveling with him into Canaan. But then we read in chapter 12, verse 16, that Abram gained even more wealth from Pharaoh in Egypt. We might call that ill-gotten gain because it was Pharaoh's kindness in exchange for Abram's wife. But when it all shakes out, and after God has sorted the matter out, we find that Abram still has the stuff. And it was a blessing from the Lord that the Lord had given to him. A gift of God sovereignly given even in the midst of Abram's foolishness. Remember, God stepped in to protect Abram from those who would do him harm. And that's what we saw in Egypt. So Abram now is blessed with considerable wealth. Livestock at that time was one of the primary symbols of wealth, in some ways more so than silver and gold, although Abram had that too. And that is the sense of the text here, is that he was extremely wealthy now. In fact, the same word translated very rich here is translated severe back in chapter 12, verse 10, referring to the famine that drove Abram out of Canaan into Egypt. It means heavy. Just as the famine had been severely heavy in the land, so Abram, in his riches, is severely heavy. We all understand that that is both a blessing and a curse, isn't it? Certainly, it was a sign of God's provision and favor on the one whom he had called to receive his special blessing. And I believe at this point, Abram has a right view of his wealth. That will play out in the, the text that follows and in, in the following chapters. Abraham had been faithless and foolish and self-serving in the past in Egypt, but now having returned to the Lord, he is a new man and he is not clinging to these things anymore. In fact, we get a good picture of that if you turn over to chapter 14 and, and of how Abram views his wealth in verses 22 and 23. 
while Abram is making a deal with the king of Sodom, we read this after rescuing Lot from his captivity. Verse 22, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. That's a big contrast to the Abram we saw in Egypt, who got rich off of Pharaoh. And now we see Abram's mindset about his own stuff and about where God has put him. From the moment God called Abram out of Ur, he was a tent dweller the rest of his life, in spite of all that wealth. You ever thought about that? The only thing Abram built was altars. He didn't build himself a house. He dwelt in tents. And though he may have been self-serving in Egypt, he was not a self-serving man anymore. And Abram understood that he was a pilgrim in a foreign land, and he lived accordingly. Yes, this land would be his and his descendants eventually, but at the moment, he's a foreigner among the citizens. And he held his possessions loosely, and he kept his eyes, Hebrews 11 tells us, on that promise, on that heavenly city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. But, nevertheless, this blessing of God to Abram also became a problem, a source of strife for those living among him. You see, it wasn't just Abram who was wealthy. We read in verse 5 that Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Lot is Abram's nephew, who had traveled with him into the land. And though he wasn't as wealthy as Abram, Lot still had a significant stockpile of stuff. And the problem arises in verse 6, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. There's the problem. I don't think the problem was with the silver and the gold, but it's with the livestock. There just isn't enough grazing land for them. It's a problem. And so, not only do we see that there's a problem in verse 6, but there's also strife in verse 7. Because of this problem, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. It's common, isn't it? The more we possess, the more responsibility we have and the more trouble we often take on to ourselves, right? We understand that. That's the blessing and the curse that go hand in hand. And it is so easy, isn't it, to let things become more important than people. Now, I don't know that there was direct conflict between Abram and Lot specifically, but it is clear that the herdsmen couldn't get along, and no doubt it was creating strife all around because they could not figure out a way to accommodate everyone's interests. And then we have another detail added. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Of course they were. It was the land of Canaan. Why add that? Because it's a reminder that it wasn't just Abram and Lot and their people who were here. There were plenty of others too. And now we have a twofold problem. One, it's getting awfully crowded. And two, the family is beginning to fight amongst each other. 
So there's a real enemy outside the camp. But now there's fighting going on inside the camp. And we can't have that. So in verse 8, Abram steps in and he takes charge to stop the conflict. And Abram said to Lot, verse 8, There is to be, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Lot, we're family. The word means brothers. They're not biological brothers, but they're a close family. Family meant something to them. And it's not fitting for families to quarrel in that way, especially when they're surrounded by the real enemy. And so in verse 9, Abram makes a magnanimous, gracious, generous offer. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And you think, wait. Wait, wait a minute. What land did he just offer to Lot? It's the land of Canaan. They're standing up on a mountain peak somewhere. Some have estimated around elevation 3,000 feet. They're looking around. They can see an awful lot. And Abram says, go where you will, and I'll go where you don't. Take your pick. And here Abram is offering to Lot what God has already said belongs to him by divine right. Imagine that. What a stark contrast to the scheming, self-preserving Abram we saw in chapter 12. And here is where we see what has become of Abram's faith and what has become of his hope. His hope was not in the land. His hope was not in his earthly possessions. His faith was not in those things. His hope and faith were in God himself and God alone. That's what got him out of Ur in the first place, remember? He didn't know where he was going. All he knew was Yahweh's the one who said go. That's all he needed. He got up and left. And now he knows Yahweh said the land is mine. And that was enough. His faith and his hope were in God himself, and he rested on his word alone and his promise alone. And in that, Abram was completely free to do what needed to be done to make this situation work out. You see that? Sometimes our conflicts are fed, aren't they? Because we live in bondage to our own selfish pursuits. And here Abram is freed up from that. He demonstrates the freedom of those who trust in the Lord completely. And those who trust in the Lord completely do not have to fret. They do not have to agonize and burn themselves out by micromanaging their lives and their circumstances. Why? Because they know God's in control. And they will let him do what seems good to him. That's the mindset of the Apostle Paul. If you flip over to Romans chapter 8 and, and look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, you'll see the attitude, this attitude, this freedom, and this hope and faith played out in what the Apostle Paul writes. He says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, those things that burden us and dominate us, our circumstances each day, right, 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only cre the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await, as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What's he saying? Life is hard, and it's painful. And I don't know what the answer is every time. I don't know exactly what tomorrow is going to look like. I don't know how this is going to shape out, but this I know. I have been set apart by God himself for the adoption of sons, and there is glory that is coming, and in that I rest, and in that I hope, because I know if God said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And so if he decides to take something precious away from me in this life, or if he decides to bring me a certain level of pain or sorrow in this life, then let it be. I know he will carry me through. Take all this world from me. Take it all. I know the promise of God, and I trust him, and I know not one detail of his promise to me will be left unfulfilled. That's God. That is our God. And this is Abram's faith on display. That is the settled faith of one who is still a pilgrim, but a godly and faithful pilgrim in this world. But what was a moment of spiritual victory for Abram turns out to be a moment of spiritual weakness for Lot. And here, Lot stands as a contrast to Abram's faith. Now, the New Testament assures us that Lot was a righteous man. But his life doesn't bear that out very much in the Old Testament. And he stands as a contrast to Abram, who is the man living by faith. Lot lives by sight. And in Lot, we see how foolish and how dangerous that is, as his story bears out. We read in verse 10, And Lot lifted up, here's his response to what Abram said, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. We don't know exactly where Zoar was. But the general sense of the text and what most people assume is that what Lot is eyeing here is to the east. We'll see that he moves east and it's just outside the land that God promised to Abram. It's what many seem to think and it seems reasonable. He's looking that direction. He looks around and he notices this valley called the Jordan Valley near where we think Sodom and Gomorrah were, and other cities. There were several others around there. And it is described as a pristine area, a, a, an area 
described in terms of the lushness of the Garden of the Lord, or Eden, and the richness of Egypt. It was a truly desirable place. It was beautiful, rich, and full of opportunity for prosperity in regard to Lot and his possessions and his livestock. But there is an ominous undertone here. Did you catch it when we read the text? The Garden of the Lord, Eden, and Egypt are both places that in Scripture receive the Lord's judgment. Why? Because its citizens chose to live by sight and to live independently of faith in Yahweh. And furthermore, there is that foreshadowing ominous statement at the end of the verse in parentheses, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's more judgment coming. We're meant to see here that as beautiful and desirous as this land was, that Lot was surveying, there is something dangerous here. There is something not quite right. Nevertheless, in verse 11, Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, and thus they separated from each other. I don't think I can fault Lot entirely for choosing that land. And honestly, all other things being equal, this choice may not have been wrong in and of itself. But the structure and language of the passage is meant to place Lot's decision here in direct contrast to Abram's faith and his worship. And in that, we see that regardless of whether this decision in and of itself was okay for him to make, there's something not right in Lot's thinking as he made the decision. We understand that, right? That often the problem in our decisions is not because we've chosen the obviously wrong thing or the outrightly sinful thing, but that we've chosen something for the wrong reason or in the wrong way with the wrong motives, right? Sometimes that's how we fall into sin. And we're meant to feel that weight here. Then we read in verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Abram's always going to live on the countryside in the tents, but Lot's eventually going to end up living in a house within the city. You watch Lot's life and you see that it heads that direction. At this point, I'm not sure that Lot is terribly interested in the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think he's simply making an earthly choice. I think there's something about it that attracts his eye and draws him in, in an earthly, human way. He's making the practical choice. But the point is, he is not making his decision driven by the worship of Yahweh, and he is not primarily seeking his will, but only he, he's only following a short-sighted and selfish mindset that is seeking earthly prosperity and earthly pleasure as our world is so prone to do today. So while choosing that particular area may not have been sinful in itself, we are meant to see in Lot the same dangerous and sinful, earthly, self-centered thinking that led Abram into trouble in Egypt. And again, when your decision-making is based purely on, well, it's not a sin, you're probably flirting with that line of temptation somewhere. 
And we'll see as we track life, Lot's life out, especially in chapters 14 and 19, that this was just the starting point of a monumental fall for Lot. And the text foreshadows that in verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the language that's used here, the way the language sets that up is to point out that this was a particularly wicked city. And Lot has now pulled himself away from the man of faith, and he has put himself in proximity to this great wickedness. And it puts him in a very compromising situation, something he clearly was not spiritually prepared to handle. He separates himself from Abram and puts himself in a dangerous spot. And this decision will lead him into a world of trouble. As we see throughout his life, he will compromise his own morals. He will lose his own moral backbone. And he will compromise his own family. Listen, every decision we make has consequences. And it will lead us somewhere. Even the decisions that we think are no big deal can cause a world of trouble, right? They can cause a world of heartache and a world of regret by taking us places we never thought we would go and by bringing us consequences we never thought we would bear. Sin always takes us further than we ever meant to go. And it always keeps us longer than we ever meant to stay. And it always costs us more than we ever meant to pay. And we get a hint of that from Abram in chapter 12 when his plan went off the rails horribly. And we'll see it again through Lot's life as his plan and his decisions take him off the rails horribly. And there is a grave warning for us there. But let's go back to Abram. Abram, this man of faith, who here is acting by faith. After separating from Lot and settling in the land of Canaan, God speaks to him in verses 14 and 15. And he says this, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. God reiterates a staggering promise he gave at the beginning of chapter 12, and he expands on it. He shows Abram the land as far as the eye can see in every direction, all the land of Canaan. And he promises that it will belong to him and his descendants forever. And then he goes on in verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now remember, Abram is over 75 years old. His wife is over 65 years old and has never been able to have children. This promise of offspring is an impossible promise. And God reiterates it here, just in case Abram maybe forgot about it. He reiterates it and he intensifies it and he assures Abram it will come to pass. And Abram believes God. And then verse 17, God says, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. This is a symbolic walk. In that day, it pictured 
the new owner of a piece of property coming in and surveying it. It was the last step that was necessary for him to take ownership of it. And here Abram, by God's order, walks through the land and, and symbolically takes possession of it as its rightful owner. It is a visual assurance of the, of, of the certainty of God's promise to him. Here is a huge contrast to Lot. Here is God's divine alternative to living by sight in earthly pursuits. Here, Abram, by faith, he's living by the promise of God in hope for future fulfillment. He is unbound by earthly attachments, and yet he is receiving a rich promise. He is the one who receives the abundant blessing. And Lot, well, we'll see in future chapters where he ends up. Lot lives by faith and loses everything in the end. I mean, lives by sight. He lives by sight and loses everything in the end. Abram lives by faith. And in the end, he gains everything. Descendants that can't even be counted. Land. Blessing. And he is, as it turns out, the patriarch of the ones who would be a blessing to all the world. Listen. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that God has made promises for you? Do you believe that God has a will for you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever realized that you're not here just for no reason at all, but that God has put you here and God has a purpose for you? Do you believe that God loves you? And has a plan for you? Do you believe that he cares for you and will provide for you? Do you believe that he will fulfill every detail of his plan and promise in your life? You say, I don't feel like it's working out that well. Well, that's because God's purpose and God's promise to you is not bound to this earth. What is God's promise to you? Go back again to Romans chapter 8. And let's move on in the passage and continue to see what God's plan and purpose is. For his people. Romans chapter 8, again, picking up in verse 28. You know this verse, many of you do. Have you ever considered its implications? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Yeah, even the bad in your life works together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? Verse 29, for those who whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's Christ-likeness. That's transformation. Be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... He also, what? Glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Have you ever thought about how grand that promise is? How grand that vision is for your life? He didn't just save you to put you at square one and then leave you on your own to find your way. 
just as surely as he foreknew you in eternity past, he will glorify you in eternity future. For all who are in Christ Jesus. And if those are true, if both ends of that promise are true, then there is unshakable security every point in between. What makes you think that you need to pull your hair out in worry and anxiety about your future and your circumstances in this world? What makes you think that you need to manipulate your own circumstances and clutch stubbornly to your own stuff? What makes you think that you need to take matters into your own hands. I'll tell you, that's not the Holy Spirit making you think that. The Holy Spirit wants you to think otherwise. Are you wiser than God? Are we more powerful than God? Are we more capable? Have we not seen over and over again, when that is our mindset, that it only makes the trouble worse? when we consider the settled nature of a life of faith, does it not put us at rest? Do we not see that God offers us a better way? Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What a promise. What security. This is the basis and security of our faith. This is the mindset of faith, and, when, and, and with it comes the assurance of God Himself, who is the God of peace and who will sanctify you completely and will make sure that your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Friends, there's no question in that. There's no uncertainty there. And with that, we come to verse 18, where we again see Abram's gratitude and worship to the Lord. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. He's still in his tent. He's still waiting to see some fulfillment of God's promise, most of which he won't even see in his lifetime. But he's settled. And he's resting by faith in the word of the Lord, because the word is enough. Because it's his word. This is the life of settled faith for Abram, the godly pilgrim. God is at the center of his thoughts, his decisions, and everything else. So whatever God says, whatever God does, Abram worships. And he worships with faith and gratitude. This is faith at work in the life of God's people. Now, that's the story. What are some lessons that we can glean 
from the story. I suppose there are many. And I'll bet you could come up with some that I didn't come up with or don't mention here. And I hope that you've picked some up along the way. I've tried to sow some seeds for you along the way. Let me finish just by giving you four practical lessons from a story like this that sort of serve as seeds that other lessons can also come forth from. First of all, understand the subtle and progressive nature of temptation and sin. It's not the main point of the text, but it's there. And we see it in the life of Lot. Beginning here in chapter 13 and then looking ahead to chapters 14 and 19. We start to see that sin and temptation are deceptive. And they often begin in our lives with subtle and seemingly harmless decisions. But take note of Lot's progressive fall. He didn't fall in a moment. He fell over a period of time. And then look at Romans chapter 1 and observe how the downward spiral of sin is described. Beginning with simply ignoring the acknowledgement of God and ending up in places that originally you would have never imagined could happen. And then consider the progression of sin that is described in James chapter 1 verses 14 through 16. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Who sets out to sin with the intention of reaching death? Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Avoid toying around with sin. Avoid playing around even with the appearance of evil. Understand the subtle and progressive nature of temptation and sin. Second lesson. Learn to live with a pilgrim mindset. Learn to live with a pilgrim mindset. After all, we too are pilgrims in this world, are we not? If glory is what God has promised, and if He is preparing a place for us there, then this isn't where we live forever. Not like it is today. We are citizens of heaven. We're just passing through this earth. We're just traveling on toward our heavenly home. Therefore, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Learn to live with a pilgrim mindset. Third lesson. Make devotion to God and His will the center of your life. This world is not worth holding on to. Not at the expense of that. Seek your purpose and your identity, and your joy, and your fulfillment in Him alone. There is nothing and no one greater. Everything else will disappoint. Everything else will break down. Everything else will hurt you in some way at some point. 
but in Him we can rejoice. In His will, we can find the gracious provision and protection of God. Every moment and every aspect of our life ought to be about worship and devotion to Him. That is our greatest joy. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Presenting your bodies is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Make devotion to God and His will the center of your life. And then finally, rest in God's sovereign promise and gracious provision. Rest in God's sovereign promise and gracious provision. Don't cling to the things of this world. Don't waste your life on earthly, worldly pursuits. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Lord abides forever. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. You know what that means? Submit yourself to what God is doing in your life. Don't kick against it. If he's leading you through the valley of the shadow of death, go with him because he is with you so that at the proper time he may exalt you. All the while, this is what we do, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is the settled faith of a godly pilgrim. And it's something that doesn't just belong to Abram. Should have belonged to Lot. This is the godly settled faith that ought to mark every one of us here today. Let's pray.